Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're on Route 66, and we're at number six in the uh, series. And uh, talking in this message about majoring on the minors. And we will cover six of the minor prophets in this message and uh, deal with them. Vance Havner said that uh, prophets are on the receiving end of brick bats more than bouquets. And if you're going to be a prophet, you better have the hide of a rhinoceros and the heart of a lamb and not get the two confused. Uh, because uh, through history, those that have stood as prophets are those that have been world changers like Martin Luther and Tyndall and others have found themselves uh, crucified, uh, persecuted, killed, and then the next generation builds a monument to them. Several years ago, Carl Menninger wrote a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? The premise of that book was a man who stood on a street corner in Chicago in September of 1972, and as people walked by, he would stretch out his hands and to the closest person to him and point at them on the street corner and say, Guilty! And then somebody else would walk by and he'd point at him and say, Guilty! And a reporter who found out about this interviewed one person and one man said, How did he know? He knew because all men stand guilty. Because all men are sinners. And all men need a confrontation with Christ and with the Word of God to let us know that our guilt can be covered by the grace of God. That our sins can be forgiven. And that when we return and when we repent, God begins to do things in our lives that cannot be explained other than by his grace. So let's begin in Hosea. The Lord calls the backslider. The thing about Hosea that impresses me, and I've probably studied Hosea more than any of the other minor prophets, is Hosea reminds us how seriously God takes sin, but how much he loves the sinner. It, it is a story that is fascinating, the story of Hosea and his wife and the three children that she bore, at least two of them not being his. And uh, the, the fact that we just wink at sin today. Chuck Swindoll said in 1982, I think, that the problem with American Christians is we have forgotten how to blush. We laugh at things that grieve God. Let's just take a recent example. We could take a hundred examples. But when David Letterman makes a joke about a 14-year-old girl and statutory rape and doesn't get it until pressure forces him to apologize, we are in a sick country. It is never funny that a 14-year-old girl can get raped. That's not funny. And when we get comedy that makes us laugh at what God judges, 
Something needs to be done about the kind of comedy that we listen to. And it is amazing how much we push the line and laugh at the expense of others in great trials and adversity. There are thousands of young girls that have been sexually abused by members of their family. And to even think that that kind of thing is funny is beyond understanding how far and how evil the heart of man can be. Vance Havner said, when tragedy becomes comedy, when we laugh at what should make us weep, we are nearing disaster. There are some key words in the book of Hosea, the word whoredom. He's referring to spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness, 14 times, mercy or loving kindness. God's mercy, which is also God's loving kindness, is referred to 16 times and 15 times. Hosea said God calls his people to return, to return. For Gomer to return to her home and live with Hosea, that he bought her back and brought her back into his home. It is a phenomenal story of the grace and the forgiveness of God. Although she had grieved him, she had sinned against him, she had become unfaithful, she was uh, flagrantly sinful. There was the possibility of restoration. It is God's illustration of his love toward unfaithful people. And the, the, the key to Hosea is understanding is that when we sin, we in fact commit spiritual adultery. We are spiritually unfaithful to the one who loves us with all that he has and has shown his love in every way possible. Now, there are some sins listed in Hosea. First of all, swearing and falsehood, chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. The people were guilty of swearing and falsehood. It should not go unnoticed by us that there are preachers in America today who use profanity in the pulpit because they're trying to get the attention of people. They don't believe that the Holy Spirit is sufficient enough to get the attention of people. And so they go for shock value by using words that should never come out of a pulpit and then patting themselves on the back for it. Now, there was an example this week that I won't even dare mention that was just so over the line, it wasn't even funny. And this guy's one of the best-selling authors in America and should never, never do some of the things and say some of the things that he does. Then there's murder and bloodshed. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 all speak to murder and bloodshed. There was adultery. Chapter 4 and, and chapter 7, <clears throat> perversion and a in chapters 10 and 12. Idolatry, chapter 4, chapter 8, and chapter 10. Drunkenness, chapter 4 and chapter 7. And a failure to obey God, chapter 4 and chapter 8. The sins of Israel are the sins we find inside the church today. And the sins we find in our nation were the sins of Israel for which God was pleading for them to return and come back to him. 
Then we come to Joel. Joel is a book of repentance and revivals, probably the earliest of the prophets. The key phrase in the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. And I want to ask you to turn to the book of Joel, a, a short book, the minor prophets, the book of Joel. And he talks about the day of the Lord five times. Israel was under a plague, a plague of locusts and that had devoured every green thing. And Joel told them the reason they were under the plague was because it was a judgment of God on their sin. And that plague led to a famine. Joel chapter 1 and verse 4. And he just shows the progression here. When the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Verse 14, what should we do? Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Blow a trumpet. In other words, sound the alarm. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let everybody know. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And so as you walk through Joel in the second part of the outline on fasting and prayer, you come to Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. Yet even now, th this is Joel saying judgment is coming, but there is a possibility that God could withhold judgment if we do some things. And so here's what he says in verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, don't do something that's for external and for show. Get down to the core of who you are. Rend your hearts. Now return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. What Joel called for in his day, we need in our day. We need revival. We need a repenting and a blowing of the trumpet and a waking up of God's army that has fallen asleep and we need to be reminded that God could yet turn this nation. We may be on the brink, but we're not there yet. And as long as there is a day of grace and a day of mercy, we should cry out to God and ask him to send revival to this land. That's why the Refresh Conference is so important to me. Because I want to challenge pastors to make a difference in their churches, to preach about the things that matter. Richard Owen Roberts said to us, you need to preach revival until it happens. Amen. You need to talk about it until it comes. You don't need to quit talking about it. It's not just a subject to be interested in. It is a passion that needs to consume us because revival is nothing more or less than Jesus. When we get revival, we get all of Jesus. And when we get all of Jesus, we have revival. Then we come to the book of Amos. Amos is a book of righteousness and judgment. His name means burden or burden bearer. He was a layman who walked onto the scene. And uh, the key phrase in the book is, I will not turn away the punishment. Eight times. Eight times. 
God says, I will not turn away the punishment. The key words are punishment, captivity, and transgression. They're found 12 times in this book. Now, the thing about Amos is, is he keeps drawing a circle. <laughs> he talks about the people outside the land, and amen, that's right. Boy, they're sinners, and they deserve judgment. And he says, the people over here, they're, 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 yeah, that's right. They're sinners, and they deserve judgment. And Amos keeps tightening the noose and tightening the circle until finally he starts talking about God's people, and they go, wait a minute, we're not, we're not the problem. You see, it, it's real easy for us to preach about the folks in Hollywood and to preach about the politicians and to preach about the pornographers and to preach about all the other people out there. And, and you get a lot of amens from the church crowd, but you let preachers start talking about uh, drawing that circle. In. And here's what Amos is doing. Amos is setting them up for a slam over the net. That's exactly what he's doing. He's just kind of lobbing it over there and they're saying, that's right, brother. That's right. You talk about all those heathen out there. They're, they're just leading our children astray. You talk about it. And then Amos comes down and he just gets them right around the neck and says, and you're the problem, not them. And they didn't want to hear that message. The sins at the time of Amos were selfishness and immorality and greed and idolatry and oppression. By the way, at the time of Amos, there was a false confidence in military might and abuse of power at all levels of politics. There was wealth without compassion and no sense of of a judgment and a coming responsibility. So the outline is there's a judgment against the nations. There's a judgment against Israel. Chapters 3 through 6, every chapter begins with here and every chapter ends with therefore. Hear what God has to say. Therefore, this is what God's going to do. So he's talking about the judgment against Israel, the vision concerning Israel, and those visions are progressive, and then the promises concerning Israel in chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Obadiah. Obadiah talks about God's justice. The book of Obadiah was written to Edom. The key words in this book are possess and Edom and cut off. Now, there, there are a lot of notes there for you about uh, Edom, but that is the location of Petra, the impregnable stronghold in the mountains. But Edom is never heard from again after the early first century. They become insignificant. Now, the book was written to judge Edom. Who were the Edomites? First of all, they were descendants of Esau. They were descendants of Esau. And so God is judging the descendants of Esau. Why is he judging them? First of all, because they refused to let Israel pass through the land. That's in the book of Numbers, chapter 2. You remember that they asked for permission to go through the land on the way to the promised land, and they said no. And God said, you'll be judged for that. Notice they're being judged for how they treat the Jews, God's people. This is going to be a recurring theme on the judgment of Edom. They are judged because they refuse safe passage for the Israelites through their land. They are judged for looking on and doing nothing while Jerusalem was being destroyed. That's the second reason that judgment was coming on them. They looked on and they stood by and they did nothing 
while Jerusalem was being destroyed. The third reason they were being judged is because they were rejoicing in the downfall of Jerusalem. They rejoiced that Jerusalem had been wiped out and that the people had been sent into captivity. And so Obadiah speaks against the pride, their defiance against God, and their hatred of the Jews. Uh, one of the greatest statements I ever heard Warren Wiersbe made, he says, you be careful how you speak of the Jews. And we know that uh, the Jews are not all religious Jews that inhabit the land of Israel today. Many of them are atheists. But he said, you be careful how you speak of the Jews because you could not be saved if it had not been for a Jew. Amen. Our salvation did not come through a Gentile. Our salvation came through a Jew. And it is a blight on Christianity. That there have been elements of Christianity that have been anti-Semitic or have stood by while Jews were being persecuted and slaughtered and done nothing and said nothing which puts us in the same camp as the Edomites. So if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of grace with the Jews. I'm going to pray for peace in Jerusalem. I'm going to pray for my Jewish brethren because God has a plan for them in the end. And uh, it's a pretty significant plan as you read prophecy. Edom is an illustration and a warning of any nation that fails to recognize God's ultimate purpose for his chosen people, the Jews. Now, we know we're under a new covenant, and we are God's chosen people, the church. But the God has a plan for his chosen people, and, and Edom is an illustration of what God will do and how God treats those who treat the Jews. King Herod was an Edomite. What did he try to do? He tried to kill the babies so that the king of the Jews would not live. Herod was an Edomite. Edom represents any man or any nation that stands against the will of God. And this book clearly states God's love and patience and sovereign care over the Jews. Jonah, a book we're all familiar with. Whether it was a whale or a big fish, he got swallowed. Jonah is a phenomenal book. It's, there's a call and disobedience in chapter 1. His punishment, his prayer, and his deliverance in chapter 2. A call and his obedience in chapter 3. And then Jonah resents that God saves those people. <laughs> Can you imagine? He goes and does what God tells him to do. Then he gets mad that they've repented. I don't want to go preach to those people. I'm going to go the other direction. He ends up in a fish, gets spit out on the, on the seashore goes to him and preaches and hopes that God's going to judge him, and then all of a sudden they repent. Now he's mad at God because they've repented. You see the key verses and the key words there. Jonah's a type of Christ in his death and his burial and resurrection. Remember, Christ referred to that in his earthly ministry, and then he's a type of Israel. Why is he a type of Israel? Because Israel has been swallowed up into the sea of nations. And you have ten nations that have been dispersed and mixed in with all the other nations of the world that one day come back together. But the, the, the breaking up of the people of God and the tribes of Israel, Jonah is a picture of people that have been swallowed up and just disappeared. We don't know what's happened to many of the tribes of Israel. There are five greats in this book. First of all, there's a great refusal in chapter 1 and verse 3. Jonah doesn't don't want to do what God said. There's a great refusal. 
There's a great fish, verse 17. There's a great city, chapter 1 and verse 2. There's a great jealousy, chapter 4 and verse 1. And there's a great God. A great refusal, a great fish, a great city, a great jealousy, and a great God. Let me tell you why the book of Jonah is significant. Jonah is the book in the Old Testament prophets that pushes us toward missions. To be involved in missions, to care about others, to go outside of our comfort zone and to reach people that have not been reached and to, and to touch people's lives. Then we come to Micah. Micah, God warns and punishes and restores. He talks about a coming judgment, a coming kingdom, and the controversy and the final appeal. In the book of Micah, you find some fascinating things. First of all, the birthplace of Jesus is given, which is quoted when they said, when they went to find Christ, the three wise men found Christ. He was born in Bethlehem, chapter 5 and verse 2. Christ is called the king. In chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. And Christ will reign in righteousness over the earth. That's at his next time he hit, walks on the earth. Chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7. Now I want to ask you to turn to Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Micah 6 and verse 8. One of the most famous verses in all of scripture is Micah 6, verse 8. By the way, it's one of the favorite verses of liberal theologians. And a lot of liberal and social gospel ministries hinge everything they do on this verse, but it is a great verse. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is the clear Old Testament definition of true religion. You could write by Micah 6, 8, James 1, 27, because it parallels James 1, 27. So what is he saying here? Do justice. That's Christian ethics. That's Christian ethics and integrity. Love mercy. That's how we treat and think about others. That we love mercy and we walk humbly. That defines our daily experience with Christ. We do justice. That's our ethics, our integrity. We love mercy. That's how we treat other people. We walk humbly. That's our walk and our daily experience with God. That's creed and conduct. That's faith and works. That's spirit and truth. So let me close with this. The book of Micah, the key words. A remnant, six times. You see the word remnant. God is always working with the remnant. By the way, the word remnant appears 59 times in the prophets. That we are to hear nine times, and there's desolation four times. What do the minor prophets do? The minor prophets call us to hear from God and to do what God says. To hear from God and to do what God says. To see what God says and make the adjustments with our lives on what God says we are to make adjustments with. The areas that we need to fine-tune, correct, repent of, whatever it is, that's what the minor prophets are there for. And so the next message, we'll look at the last six, and then we'll look at why God was silent for 400 years before Jesus showed up.
Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.